Today's reading is Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. It can be found on page 683 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Isaiah 55, 1 through 9. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The word of the Lord. we begin. Our gracious God, we come to you from many different places in our um, experiences of life and of the world this week. And as we come sitting in these seats, we might have doubts and questions about um, whether any of this stuff is true and whether we could ever believe it. On the other hand, you know, right next to someone feeling that way is someone who um, almost has tears of joy at answered prayer at um, the, the transpired events of this week, maybe in the midst of sadness there was hope and presence and comfort, maybe in the midst of a fork in the road there was clarity. Um, some come uh, sad today, some come happy, some come f- believing and others come doubting and from all these different places. The truth is we're more of a mess than we care to admit. That's universal. And so it's universal to find out, to have a surprise and to have joy at finding out that you move towards people who are broken. That you don't reject, but you move towards acceptance so that we find out from your story, and we'll find out more about that now, that even though we're more broken than we care to admit, you have have moved towards us in a way that we're more loved and accepted than we ever imagined more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, and we get to live as if that is true. We get to live within that truth and live from that truth as it shifts and changes our approach towards everything once we know that it's true. So would you help us to know that and teach us more about your love in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody go to the farmer's market this morning? No? Couple? All right? A few people? I have, I have, ever since we started City Life Church, 
I've always had a, conflict, a, a scheduling conflict with Sunday morning <laughs> farmer's market. Yeah, well, okay, good to know. <laughs> so, um, listen to this list. Cucumber, bell peppers, kale, stone fruit, cherries, community, the connections with vendors, strawberries, beets, flowers, lots of exclamation points, Brussels sprouts, a fun little tree, Fresh eggs, strawberries, flowers, fresh veggies and fruits, community connection, new friends, peaches, Brussels sprouts, honey. This is, this is what your answers were to what your favorite thing is to get at the farmer's market. Any other things? Did I miss anything? Nuts? Eggs? Mushrooms? Does anybody have that where they where you like to I know there's some of you out there where you like to collect like go and just see what there is available see what what's good what's fresh what's in season and then from whatever you take home you like to try to make it into something and maybe even have people over and to be able to see some people go like this, some people go like this it's not me I know it's just some of you out there do this um, invite me over when you do it but don't expect a reciprocation. Um, and then you've got a feast, right? And then that's to you, that's like a dream feast, right? Because it's just, it all came together and it's fresh and it's local and um, feast. What are the kinds of feasts that we look forward to and that we love? There have been some amazing feasts throughout history. One that I think a lot of you will like was the uh, funeral feast of King Midas, the king of Phrygia, circa 700 BC. And I think you'd like it, a lot of you, for the food because I know, I know some of your food sensibilities. So <laughs> picture this. There was, I mean, we know this. That we, know, we know about some of these ancient feasts. There was platters of, this is a Mediterranean feast. There was platters of fresh figs, goat cheese, fresh rocket and asparagus spruces, or sprues, with sour cherry vinaigrette. Flatbread served with garbanzo and olive spread. Aromatic lamb and lentil stew with fennel, star anise, cumin, cumin, celery seed, honey, and fresh herbs. Sweet tarts of caramelized fennel served with pomegranate juice and raisin and honey syrup. I know, I know. <laughs> Dried apricots topped with sheep's milk, cheese, and pistachio nuts. It's a real feast. Seven... 700 BC, you were born a little too late for that one. Now, for those of you who notice the absence of carnivorous ventures in that one, um, for you carnivores, here's the feast for the enthronement of George Neville, Archbishop Bishop of York in 1465. It was a three-day feast, included 41,833 items of meat and poultry. Including, just to, here's a few, this is not, even, not at all exhaustive. Uh, 104 oxen, 6 wild bull, 1,000 muttons, that's like sheep, I think, sheep and goats, right? 304 veals, uh, 304 porks, this is like Old English, porks, with an E-S at the end, 400 swans, 
5,000 geese, 4,000 rabbits, and 1,000 egrets. This is just some of the things. I skipped a lot of them. Egrets, that's right. It's the enthronement of George Neville, Archbishop of York. Other dishes included 12 porpoises and seals. Someone said, because I can. (laughs) Um, No, and 13,000 desserts. So there you go. 13,000. The Christmas dinner during the siege of Paris in 1870 was perhaps the funnest feast of all time because as the Prussian army sieged Paris in the fall and winter of 1870, butchers began slaughtering zoo animals. So there was stuffed donkey's head. There was elephant consomme. Camel roasted English style, kangaroo stew, roasted sirloin of bear with pepper sauce, the haunch of wolf with roe sauce, cat flanked with rats, antelope terrain with truffles. So there you go. Those are some fun historic feasts of all time. We're a feasting people. We... um, We like to have celebrations, and we like to have good food at these celebrations. We like to make feasts. And in many ways, you could look at the season within which we find ourselves, the season of Lent, as we journey towards Good Friday and Easter. You can view it as a time of examining your feasting patterns. Taking a, and just, just go with me on that. You can look at it as a time to kind of think about your life and all of the things upon which you feast. It may not just be food. It's, it's, it's food kind of standing as a picture for everything else. Let me just read in its entirety a reflection by Barbara Cawthorn Crafton as she just, does just this. She reflects on her life and how she is feasting. She's looking back. She says, we didn't even know what moderation was, what it felt like. We didn't just work. We inhaled our jobs sucked them in, became them, stayed late, brought work home. It was never enough, though, no matter how much time we put in. We didn't just smoke. We lit up a cigarette only to realize we already had one going in the ashtray. We ordered things we didn't need from shiny catalogs. You know this goes back a ways, right? from back in in my day. So we ordered things we didn't need from the shiny catalogs that came to our houses. We ordered three times as much as we could use and then we ordered three times as much as our children could use. We didn't just eat, we stuffed ourselves. We had gained only three pounds since the previous year, we told ourselves. Three pounds is not a lot. We had gained about that much in each of the 25 years since high school. We did not do the math. We redid our living rooms in which the furniture was worn out. We threw away clothing that was merely out of style. We drank wine when the label on our prescription said it was dangerous to use alcohol while, taste, while taking this medication. They always put that on the label, we told our children when they asked about this. We saw that they were worried. We knew it was because they loved us and needed us. How innocent they were. We hastened to reassure them, it doesn't really hurt if you're careful. We felt that it was important to be good to ourselves and that this meant it was dangerous to tell ourselves no about anything, ever. Repression of one's desires is an unhealthy thing. I work hard, we told ourselves. I deserve a little treat. We treated ourselves every day. 
And if it was dangerous for us to want and not have, it was even more so for our children. They must never know what it is to want something and not have it immediately. It will make them bitter, we told ourselves. So we anticipated their needs and desires. We got them both the doll and the bike. If their grades were good, we got them their own telephones. There were times coming into the house from work or waking early when all was quiet when we felt uneasy about the sense of entitlement that characterized our days, when we wondered if fevered overwork and excess of appetite were not two sides of the same coin, or rather two poles between which we madly slalomed. Probably, yes, we decided at those times. Suddenly we saw it clearly. I am driven by my creatures, my schedule, my work, my possessions, my hungers, I do not drive them, they drive me. Probably yes, certainly yes. This is how it is. We arose and did 20 sit-ups. The next day the moment had passed. We did none. After moments like that, we were awash in self-contempt. You are weak, self-indulgent. You are spineless about work and about everything else. You set no limits. You will become ineffective. We bridled at that last bit, drew ourselves up to our full heights, insisted defensively on our competence, on the respect we were due because of all our hard work. We looked for others whose lives were similarly overstuffed. We found them. This is just the way it is, we said to one another on the train in the restaurant. This is modern life. Some people have time to measure things out by teaspoonfuls. Our voices dripped contempt for those people who had such time. We felt oddly defensive though no one had accused us of anything. But not me, not anyone who has a life. I have a life. I work hard. I play hard. And she says, when did the collision between our appetites and the needs of our souls happen? Was there a heart attack? Did we get laid off from work? One of the thousands certified as extraneous? Did a beloved child become a bored stranger? a marriage fall silent and cold, or by some exquisite working of God's grace did we just find the courage to look the truth in the eye and for once not blink? How do we come to know that we were dying a slow and unacknowledged death and that the only way back to life was to set all our packages down and begin again, carrying with us only what we really needed? We travail, we are heavy laden. Refresh us, O homeless, jobless, possessionless Savior. You came naked and naked you go, and so it is for us. So it is for all of us. Barbara Cawthorn Crafton. Do you see a little bit about what I mean about um, examining our habits of feasting in our life? Another author, Rebecca DeYoung, made some similar observations when she said, I once experimented giving up sweets and snacks entirely for a few weeks. What I found to my chagrin was that I had unconsciously been scheduling my entire day around food. I was either eating something or anticipating the pleasure of eating most of the time. I looked forward to uh, special events like parties and social events because of the food that would be there, not the people. 
If the best food was gone before I arrived, my disappointment would color the whole event. At work, I enjoy breaks, not because they gave me a mental reprieve, but because then I had permission to eat something. And eating something was my mental reprieve. I couldn't wait to get the kids in bed at night because then I could sit back and enjoy dessert, my reward for surviving the day. I would even overeat, she says, to try to preempt that hungry feeling from arriving before the next meal. We, isn't it funny? We do have in our life, and, we, and both of those reflections exhibit a sense of feasting patterns that we almost naturally fall into. We just, it's like we're made for a sort of rhythm of feasting, and we, we kind of start to look at our life through feasting, whether it's actual food or whether it's indulgence in any other kind of way. Almost naturally. And so if you know that about us, if you get that sense, then you can start to appreciate the genius of God who in the Old Testament, when he was trying to impress upon this people that he had gathered together and chosen to make a a, a sort of a blessed relationship with and to work with them, uh, and, and he called that a covenant that he had made with them. And he started to have this relationship with them, but he framed the thing, if you look carefully back at the Old Testament, in terms of feasts. In fact, there were six feasts through the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. And so you can almost think about, like, imagine a year framed by these feasts. And they actually eventually added two more to those lists of feasts. So there's a total of eight feasts throughout the calendar year that ancient Israel and first century Jews like Jesus would go up to the mount, the mountain of Jerusalem. They called it Mount Zion. And they'd go up to Mount Zion where God's temple was and go about all these feasting rituals. Imagine your life that way. Imagine framing your life that way around feasts. Some of you are like, I already do. That's already, I don't have to imagine anything. That's my life already. Um, and what are they in American culture, right? There's different feast days. Um, I think of like Super Bowl Sunday, right? And, and um, Thanksgiving is a feast day. Christmas is usually, yeah, Christmas is a feast day. Birthday. So there were already up to four. Easter. Fourth of July is a feast day. Payday. Payday. <laughs> so... So, so we're right there already. We're, we're right in that like biblical realm of um, you know, six to eight in, in that you can quickly think of in our life. So you can imagine if, if God knows this about us, God knows about how we're wired for feasting, and he creates, he's in a sense to say, um, I want you to know about what this relationship is like, and so I want your whole year to be framed by these experiences of celebrative feasting full of meaning to just understand what God is like and what it's like to know God. One person um, put it this way, describing this theme in the Bible, the feasts of the Bible celebrate God's faithfulness to his people in preserving and protecting them and in bringing them into close fellowship with himself and with each other. That's what the feasts were driving at, teaching us. And if you look then at our passage, it starts to make a little more sense then. In passages Isaiah 55, where it starts off saying, 
Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. This is one of the, one of the little themes, the threads throughout the book of the prophet Isaiah is this looking forward to this time when on the mountain of God there would be some kind of big final feast and that that is an expression of the work of God in our world and what it's like to know God and to be with God. Someone um, writing about Isaiah 55 um, pointed out this, um, that, that Isaiah 55 is echoing how in the ancient world, when a new king would assume the throne, he would often issue a mashar, or misharum edict, declaring a release from all debts, and as part of this edict, the king would also call for a great banquet to be enjoyed by the people of that kingdom. So in both events, the edict and the banquet, they signaled a new day under a new king. And that's, that's, um, that's very much what um, the Bible tries to teach us about what it's like to know God and to have life with God, a new day under a new king. Debts are released and a celebration is started. Jesus, um, one of his favorite things to do in terms of his parables was to talk about banquets and feasts. He was just carrying on this thing from the old Jewish scriptures, the same theme. He was, it's the same message. This is what it's like to know God. This is what it's like to have a relationship with God. It's this amazing. A new day under a new king. And, and in fact, um, you maybe heard this if you've been in the church world a little bit, that people talk about this, this word that started to come up around Jesus' teachings and talking about Jesus, and the word is the gospel. And that, that means, that refers to good news and the context culturally of that was a lot later than what I just described, but it's actually the very same thing. This word gospel uh, relates to this declaration of a new king and a new land, and the news kind of getting spread. It's time to celebrate. There's a new king and a new land, and things are getting restored and set right throughout the world. Like a festive feast from your dream world. Jesus has died, has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is coming again. It's like a lavish banquet to be in on this story. And there are things that, um, within this theme that we're supposed to get, that are supposed to be communicated to us. Um, some particulars, even, that you see very often in Jesus' parables as he discusses banquets and tries to make different points about different things that have to do with banquets. So things that through the feasting analogy that we kind of, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's what God is like. That's what it's like to know Jesus. And one of the first ones is the lavishness. 
lavishness of being in a relationship with God. So in Isaiah 55, we even see this when it's um, towards the end of verse 2. Come by wine and milk without money, without cost. Oh, no, that's the end of verse 1. The end of verse 2 says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare, not just mediocre stuff, the richest of fare. Give ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live. There's a lavishness to our connection to God. We, we live with a sort of scarcity mindset, but what would it be like to believe that your relationship with God is thoroughly abundant and enough to deal with what you have in front of you, to deal with the problems of your life, the um, questions you have about life, the troubles that you face, what is it like? How might things change? How might you even pray differently if you go into it assuming the lavish, completely, um, like completely enough, more than enough nature of God's relationship with you and God's ability to work in your life? How would that change your prayer? So one of the things is just the lavishness. The, these banquets just get, make you stop in your ordinary life and, and stop and go, wow, how lavish, how incredible. The other thing about it is that these feasts are free. <laughs> they don't cost anything. Do you notice that in this passage? Come, you have no money? Come, buy and eat. You don't have any money, but you're still, you can still buy stuff at this feast, apparently. Um, I, I have some Dutch blood in my family, and the Dutch folks are one of the notorious things is we're in that category of, of ethnic groups who are extraordinarily cheap <laughs> and uh, frugal. You know, different groups have their own jokes about their own, like, frugalness. Um, but ours, uh, ours is so, we're so firmly frugal that they even call this thing, have you ever heard someone saying, hey, it's Dutch treat? Yeah. Have you heard this? Dutch treat, hey, come, let's have dinner together. It's Dutch treat, which basically means pay for your own. <laughs> Pay yourself, pay for your own meal. I even found a website online about how to send out a wedding invitation to a reception <laughs> and to not anger people, but to still make clear that it was Dutch treat. You know, what the right way, etiquette-wise, etiquette-wise was to make a Dutch treat wedding invitation. Well, God's invitation to the feast is not Dutch treat. It's free. So is the goodness of God for purchase? Um, I think most of us, most of the time, default over in this world of assuming that we might not measure up, we might not have enough to offer, we might not get to stay in the feast because we'll get found out for the poor schmucks that we are. It's, it's free. It's free. And that's obvious in a lot of Jesus' parables about banquets is because um, there's people initially who are invited who turn it down. Um, the very cultural nature of these wedding banquets and so forth in the time that Jesus told these parables was that that's, that's what it was. You foot the bill, and that is part of the cultural expectation. And even people, are, people don't want to come who got the invitation, and so Jesus pictures this, this person inviting just any, any old person because the main thing is just that people enjoy this feast and that the room is full. It doesn't at all depend on what people can bring to the table. 
And thus, the third kind of thing to notice specifically about feasts is that the invitations are actually flung far and wide so that someone would be, it would be accurate to start to get suspicious when the Bible presents this banquet imagery and someone start to say, it seems like God will let just about anyone in. Yeah, yeah, he will. That's, that's true. So much so that if you um, are a Christian and you believe in this sort of historical trajectory of Jesus will come again and there will be a new creation and things will be restored and it will be back to the way it was meant to be in the beginning, that you, you should pause and, and kind of imagine some people there that you don't expect to be there. <laughs> and get used to that idea because the invitations are flung far and wide to those who have no business being invited in the first place, it seems to many of us. This is feasting, according to the Bible, and this is what we're supposed to get from it. The imagery of the biblical feast, says one writer, is an image of the joyful celebration of the love of God for his people, which came to ultimate fruition in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Mount Zion of Jerusalem, the central location of all biblical feasts, the Lord Almighty has prepared, as Isaiah predicted in chapter 25, not the one we read, but he says, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, and will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This person goes on to say, the imagery of biblical feasting still points to the future when the Lord God will resurrect all his people from every age to live with him in eternal joy. And I love this, this closing remark. Every feast celebrated to the Lord is but a foretaste of that glorious day. There's a new... um, album out of worship music by Sandra McCracken, and we've been playing it a little bit before and after the service the last couple of weeks. It's a beautiful album, and one of the songs, the kind of the, the main song that starts the album, um, goes like this. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. So I I like this idea that feasts become something that just is, is always pointing towards a truth about God. That all feasts, all earthly feasts that we might enjoy are actually all but just a shadow of the big feast and the relationship that we have from God. And God's invitation really to us today is to um, allow feasts and feasting behaviors to speak to us. 
so that they are all pointing us towards this, this new king and this new reality that although we may not always see all the evidences of around us, we're, we're invited to begin to look at life this way as being this good, this lavish, because a new king is restoring all things. And to embody the joy in all of our living, the joy of what God has done. That's the invitation through this theme of feasting. Two weeks ago, we talked about fasting, <laughs> right? Fasting, fasting has its place. Um, and fasting, I think, helps you look inward at your need for a feast, but for the right feast. Feasting and the themes of feasting are not about us, not about you, but about God. So let them speak to you. Let us pray. God, would you um, teach us, even through simple mealtime activities, that it might be on our hearts um, to ponder you throughout the day as we reach for food, and as we come, have a chance to come towards your table of bread and wine, uh, in a few moments, we pray that the Lord's Supper, as we call it, would be just exactly that, that we would look towards you and understand you and know you better, that your Holy Spirit would arrive and settle our hearts, settle our hungry, um, often jittery with hungry, jittery with hunger, body and hearts. We pray that you would settle and you would relieve, and that you would nourish, and that this church city life would be a place where that happens regularly and often. In Jesus' name, amen.